I understand a lot of people enjoy being dead, but they're not dead, really. They're just backing away from life. Reach out, take a job, get hurt even. Play as well as you can. Go, team, go! Give me an L, give me an I, give me a V, give me an E. L-I-V-E, live! Otherwise, you got nothing to talk about in the locker room. I like you more. Hmm. I like you, Hal. That was Ruth Gordon and Bud Court in a scene from the classic Hal Ashby comedy, Harold and Maude, which recently celebrated its 50-year anniversary. Hello and welcome to episode 109 of the Occasional Film Podcast the occasional companion podcast to the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. I'm the blog's editor, John Gaspard. In today's episode, I'll be chatting with James Davidson, author of the terrific book, Hal Ashby and the Making of Harold and Maude. I am a huge fan of Harold and Maude. The movie ran here in the Twin Cities for over two years at the Westgate Theater back in the early 70s, and I saw it there a lot. And... When Ruth and Bud came to town to celebrate the film's two-year anniversary at the Westgate, I got to meet Ruth and have dinner with Bud. I captured a bunch of that two-day event on Super 8mm sound film. Check the show notes for a link to that classic mini-documentary. James Davidson's book is a deep-dive look at the events surrounding the making of Harold and Maude, from the short film script Colin Higgins wrote while in college, all the way through the edits that Hal Ashby made to the film to make it the classic it has become. Before we began our deep dive into Harold and Maude, I asked Jim about his background and his life before his Harold and Maude book. To get us started, since I know nothing about you except that you wrote this terrific book, (laughs) tell me your background. Where'd you come from? What do you do? Well, um, I grew up in St. Louis in the 60s and 70s. I went to Northwestern University for the radio TV film program, started in 1976 and graduated in 1980. So I have a bachelor's degree from Northwestern, and that's where I kind of got my interest in film study. I took classes where we wrote papers and uh, were encouraged to study films with a scholarly approach to them, so to speak. Then when I got out, I didn't uh, pursue any graduate work or take that any farther, but I continued, of course, to be interested in seeing movies. I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area in 1981. It's really a great place to live in terms of film watching There's the Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley. There's lots of great places in San Francisco to see movies. And uh, it's also where Harold and Maude was mostly filmed. (laughs) Was filmed entirely, actually, I should say. Although it's not really a movie that's associated so much with San Francisco, like Hmm. Bullet and some of the other ones, Vertigo. So um, I was really, um, I, I, I ended up starting a video production business, and that's mostly what I did for 30 some years. But I just continued to be kind of an amateur film buff, sort of scholar on my own. I'm a big fan of Alfred Hitchcock. I um, uh, um, co-administered a Yahoo Hitchcock discussion group for some years, and that was fun. Um, Ashby just was a long-time interest of mine. From high school, I saw Harold and Maude in The Last Detail and Shampoo, sort of in short order in a, a short 
period of time and uh, I noticed that this name kept coming up in the credits of the directorial as being Hal Ashby who I'd never heard of and uh, you know as well as I do that before the internet came about you know it was difficult to get a lot of information about people so Ashby was kind of out there as this unknown you know figure to me I mean I got whatever information I could about him but I really loved his movies, and uh, in the 90s, I did write an article about him in an online publication called Images Film Journal uh, to just summarized his career the best I could in the movies. I hadn't seen them all at the time. Um, in the 80s, of course, some of them were kind of hard to see. You know, They, they were. Yeah, they Looking to Get Out was a particular one for me. It's like, where can I find Looking to Get Out? Yeah, yeah. I remember when it came out and I saw an ad in the newspaper and I thought, oh, great, a new Hal Ashby movie. And then it disappeared, just like Harold and Maude, which disappeared very quickly from movie theaters. Same thing happened with Looking to Get Out. And then it was available on a VHS tape for a few years. Anyway, in 2009, a young writer named Nick Dawson wrote a, a very good biography of Hal Ashby. And uh, that sort of stimulated me to get going a little bit and maybe do some research on, on one of the films. I was, wasn't going to attempt to write a whole nother biography because Nick's biography was great. But in 2014, I just had some free time. I was working from home and I just decided, hey, you know, this is the time to do something. And Harold and Maude occurred to me because... It was a film that I knew that so many people loved and felt so strongly about, you know. Right. So many people just seemed to have a deep personal connection to Harold and Maude. And I felt like very little had been written about it in addition to that. Well, let's, uh, let's jump back. Can you think back on when and where you first saw Harold and Maude and what you thought that first time? Yeah, uh, I saw it on the first time it was re-released. My parents had actually gone to see it when it first came out. And I was only 13. I remember my mom coming home and telling me a little bit about it. And I thought, well, what a, what a strange topic for a movie, which um, uh, uh, probably a lot of other people thought. But when it was re-released in 1974, that was the first time I saw it. And in a movie theater, it was given a major re-release by Paramount in 1974 when it had been kind of growing in popularity and it a lot of college-age kids and colleges were requesting and renting the movie. And Paramount wisely, you know, to their credit, while they didn't handle the first release of the movie very well, they did continue to own the movie and they decided to give it a major re-release in 1974, which was good. It got out into the public and a lot of people saw it, including myself. I mean, I was 16, but a lot of people saw it, I think, then for the first time. And they re-released it again a couple more times in the 1970s. Yeah. And uh, I go over a little bit in the book uh, the how the money-making was done and uh, when Paramount started making money on the movie, which probably was much earlier than they told uh, Colin Higgins and uh, Hal Ashby and Ruth Gordon, all who had a back end on the profits from the movie. And I found a very interesting letter to Colin Higgins from his accountant uh, written in about 1981 talking about Paramount and what they were telling him about the profitability of the movie and when the movie was going to make money. He seemed to be a little a little cynical about the expenses they were writing off on the film. Right, <laughs> so. right. When you saw it for that first time uh, in mm. that big re-release, what did you think? I adored it. I mean, I thought it was a great movie. I wasn't offended at all by any of the subject matter. I thought it was funny. 
I thought it was touching. I thought it was serious. It had this wonderful way of going along between the serious and the comedic. I thought it was a, a superb movie. And I was seeing a lot of great movies at that time. That was a, the time when we were in high school was a really good time for movie making. It sure was. You, you know, yeah. I, I probably saw it a month or two after I saw Chinatown, which is one of my favorite movies, and uh, came out in that summer of 74. But yeah, I, I, I adored it. And I liked Cat Stevens' music. I'd been a Cat Stevens fan for several years, and his music really enhanced it. And I was just curious about the movie for many years. Because like I said, there, there wasn't much written about the movie, no. you know. And Where did this movie come from? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's famous, uh, or infamous for uh, as a movie that people see again and again and again. Yes. Um, you know, it ran here, the Westgate Theater in Minneapolis, for over two years. Right. Um, there right. was a, at least one young man who at the time had seen it 150 times, I think. Uh, right. And that's during its two-year run. How many times have you seen it? That's a good question. Um, it's hard to answer. <laughs> I saw, I saw it, you know, like a lot of people, when I saw it in 74... Then it was re-released again, I think a couple years later. I saw it again on its re-release, but I didn't go multiple times. I mean, mm -hmm. what I would do would be to take people and go, have you seen this movie? So I'd, I'd go to see it with various friends of mine. I saw it probably in college, must have seen it once or twice. You know, and then when, on home video, I bet I've seen it a couple dozen times. Yeah. So you said that uh, you you had some time on your hands, I think, in 2014, and, and yes. you picked uh, Harold and Maude as something to dive into. What was your research process? Because even at that point, a lot of the main players on and off screen were gone. So yes. how, well, how did you approach it? I started out by going to the Margaret Herrick Library, which is in, I think, Beverly Hills, and uh, made a trip down there. My wife and I made a trip down there. And I did an initial day of research there, going through the uh, files on the movie. And uh, then I did a second trip. We lived in the Bay Area at the time. So I did a second trip down to Los Angeles uh, shortly thereafter because I hadn't gotten everything I needed. Uh, you know, I attempted to reach out and contact as many people as I could. Hal Ashby has been dead for a long time. Ruth Gordon. Colin Higgins, they've all passed away. Tempted to solicit Bud Court for some help on the book. He was not responsive. <laughs> uh, which, he is famous for that. Yeah, yeah. And that sometimes happens, you know. It's, it's hard to get people to participate even for a simple interview a lot of the time. I did contact, well, I was in contact with Nick Dawson, who, was, who had written his biography on Hal Ashby. And uh, Nick was very helpful. Nick gave me all of his research notes to use, um, which were very helpful. And uh, I did get a hold of, I got a hold of Jeff Wexler. He uh, had worked on the movie as a kind of a prop master and a mm -hmm. general assistant to Hal Ashby. And uh, he was very helpful because he'd been there all through the, all through the making of the movie. You know, the actors and some of the other people were there for a few days, and uh, Jeff was pretty much there the whole time. So he was very helpful. Talked to uh, the woman who was Ruth Gordon's double, her stand-in. Mm -hmm. I talked to her on the phone, and um, I talked to a fellow who was a just had a bit part in the movie. And I had some uh, emails with Ellen Gear, who played Sunshine. 
yep. in the movie. And Ellen gave me her re- recollections of the film. But it was a long time ago for, and yeah. you know, for a lot of these people, it was a, a week or two of work, you know, and so. Nearly 50 years ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, can you remember um, what you were doing at work 50 years ago on a Tuesday? <laughs> yeah. Not, not quite, not yeah. quite. And uh, eventually, my wife helped me locate uh, Tom Skerritt, uh, who lives up in, in Washington State. And towards the end of my process, Tom gave me a call, which was very nice of him. And we talked for an hour or so about Hal and about the movie. And uh, that was that was great. That was you know, your, nice. your discussion with him that you touched on in the book confirmed for me something I've thought for years. Um, because it, you know, it took me a while to piece together who this M. Borman was uh, in the film. Yeah. And then I realized from the voice uh, that it was obviously Tom Skerritt. And then in watching his scenes with Ruth Gordon, there's a, at least one point, maybe two, where he says something to her and her response has no connection with what he just said. Right. And I realized finally, and you, recon- you confirmed it for me, that he was improvising with her and Ruth Gordon doesn't do that. Ruth Gordon yes. says the lines that were written, and to right. have kept that in just yeah. added to their scenes together, that he was on one plane and she was on another. Right, right. And I just yeah. think it's part of uh, Ashby's genius that he allowed for that confusion for an audience member to go, he's saying one thing and she's saying another. Why right. is that? Right, right. Did he talk about that at all? Yeah, he, he talked about it uh, to the extent that, you know, he was called into the movie kind of at the last minute. He wasn't supposed to be in it. And I mean, I cover that in the book and and I did I did find out some of the, the reasoning behind that. And I mean, it's in the book. It's one of the more interesting stories. Just tell, tell us quickly what that was about the, the, the poor uh, the poor actor who had the part before him. Yeah, he he'd cast an actor, his name escapes me at the moment, but who uh, was going to play the motorcycle cop. The second time they tried to shoot it, the first time they got rained out, the second time they tried to shoot it, he took off on his motorcycle and the motorcycle crashed because he hadn't put up the kickstand to the motorcycle. And when he did a turn, it, it hit the ground. Yeah. Uh, very... <laughs> Very rough, and he was—he was hurt. He was—wasn't seriously injured or a long-term injury, but he couldn't be in the movie. So then they put the scene off again, and then at the last minute, Hal persuaded Tom Skerritt to come up from L.A. and do that part. And so Tom got the part at the at the last minute. He had to kind of come in quickly and learn his lines quickly. And he is just an, more of an improvisational actor, and it just it came from a different generation and a different mindset for acting than Ruth Gordon did, who was a well-known Broadway actress, and you didn't diverge from the lines, you know, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the time she was doing, uh, you know, Eugene O'Neill or somebody like that, and you're not going to start improvising on him, you know. In this case, it was Colin Higgins, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's great. And then there was also the issue of the fact that she couldn't really drive a car very well, so her her stunt double had to do a lot of her driving. So a lot of the part where she's driving is her stunt double, who is not 80, who is 20 years old, and they created a rubber mask of Ruth Gordon's face for this young woman to wear while mm-hmm. she's driving. 
And it also explains why even when it's not raining, Maud will some will put up her hood yeah. before <laughs> yeah. she starts to drive just to before make she it. She starts to drive, yeah, to obscure. It, yeah, that's good yeah. Point. One of the other things you you mentioned that it took me a long time to notice, and I am one of those people who've, who'd seen the movie a lot, was during the motorcycle scene. I believe the last one with Tom Skerritt. Bud Court whacks himself pretty seriously in the side of the head with that shovel, and once yeah. you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. Right. I had never noticed that in seeing the movie. And it was brought watching the Blu-ray and uh, listening to the commentary on the Blu-ray where, uh, yeah, I first became aware of that. And he doesn't break. He carries on with the scene and, and how he used it in the movie. It adds a degree of re- kind of realism, sort of. It does. I mean, they had to get yeah. going. And so he, yeah. he just kept going. <laughs> Was there anything else you found out in your research that sort of surprised you that you hadn't noticed before? Uh, I guess one thing that surprised me was I ended up going back to UCLA, to the Special Collections Library at UCLA, and I went through Colin Higgins' papers. They're all held at UCLA. Hal Ashby's and the production notes are at the Beverly um, in Beverly Hills at the Margaret Herrick. But... It was really useful to go to look through Colin Higgins' notes. I guess one of the more interesting things about it is the fact that Higgins was a uh, graduate student at UCLA, and he wrote this script intending it to be just a 20-minute student film. It was the last of his three scripts that he'd written. And then with the encouragement of a lady named Mildred Lewis, he expanded it from 20 minutes to a full-length feature, and her husband, Ed, helped sell the film to Paramount. And the the film really got produced almost as it was in the way he'd initially written it. And it's kind of crazy to think that, and I think it probably only could have happened at that time in the new Hollywood era in 1971, that a script could get written by such a novice to screenwriting from an original, not from any source, and be taken almost word for word and transferred to the screen. No changes were made. There weren't any rewrites of any significance that I could find. The film was more or less made by Paramount the way he'd written it. You know, I I was surprised here there'd been a short script. I didn't know it started that way. Uh, And I was really surprised that the very first scene in the movie, the long continuous shot up to Harold hanging himself, is right there in the short, uh, exact, described exactly as it ended up being in the film. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, Higgins said the reason he knew he could do it as a student film is that he found a place that would rent him a, a camera dolly and crane that would all in one so that he could do that shot where the feet get followed and then the camera lifts up to be um, behind Harold as he hangs himself. But yeah, that's the one consistent one. As, as he expanded it, I mean, it's the finished one's quite a bit different from the original one, although the essential story of Harold and Maud meeting and falling in love is the same. But he, he did expand quite a bit. He added a number of characters. He added the entire bit about the computer dating mm-hmm. and the three girls. He added the, a lot of the Uncle Victor I don't think Uncle Victor was a character. He wasn't a character in the original. Short was Glaucus script. in that in the original short too? Glaucus, yes. Glaucus was. I think uh, his name was different, but yeah, he existed at the beginning uh, because they needed somebody to kind of help them with some of the things that they did. But yeah, Glaucus was in it. That was um, another thing that always puzzled me. You know, before I could find out anything about Harold and Maude, was why is uh, Cyril Cusack so highly billed? 
Right. And he has one line, which is, I think, huh? Right. And he, and even yeah. I knew that he was a pretty well-known British stage actor because the theater I was working at at the time when they stopped running, yeah. Harold and Maude would, were running some Pinter films, and he was in one of those. So it, it always yeah. puzzled me as to why would an actor of that stature uh, come yeah. all the way to America to do one line? And then, of course, I find out that because Hal Ashby got started as an editor, he was pretty fearless in editing. Yeah. The original cut of the movie was three hours long, which yeah. is kind of amazing if you think about it. It ends up being 91 minutes. And yeah, there were there were a number of Glaucus scenes in the in the script that were cut completely and he apparently really tried to keep some of them in but they just didn't work as they were so he ended up having to eliminate almost all of them except for that one scene where Harold comes in and she's being sculpted in the buff and even then his part is very brief in it then they talk about him a few other times and then the other thing that was kind of surprising was there was an entire character that was completely excised from the movie uh, Madame Aro, and she had a pretty significant part in the original script. She's in a lot of the scenes with Maude, and he just felt the character was unnecessary, and it just got cut and cut, and finally ended up completely excised from the movie. Hal made some good decisions about, he reordered some of the scenes, because uh, there's a lot of discussion between him and Robert Evans, the production chief of Paramount, that I found where he talks about, Hal talks about the importance of getting Maud into the movie early enough mm-hmm. so the audience doesn't lose interest, keeping her scenes the right order that so that, you know, we don't lose track of Maud. Because we do get, you know, we do get off onto a lot of Harold stuff at various points with the computer dates and Uncle Victor, but he does a great job of, of really keeping track of Maud and developing their relationship over uh, the course of, it's just a few days in the movie, of course, but mm-hmm. uh, really well done. I mean, he was such a brilliant director and I could go on and on about Hal Ashby. There's a, there's a great um, documentary that Amy Scott did about yeah. Hal that, uh, yeah, I'm sure you've seen. It's, it's great that even, you know, of course it's very posthumous, but you know, he finally got, it's gotten some attention with the um, biography and the documentary really nice that um, finally some attention's been paid his films are so great and unfortunately his demise was kind of quick and he just never got the opportunity i talk about that in the book a little bit he didn't get the opportunity to get that career renaissance or that re you know while he was alive to get it or that reappreciation which he would have if he if he lived yeah so i'm guessing that if there there was anyone you could have talked to uh, who was gone by the time you started your research, it, it would have been Hal. Uh, who else would you have really liked to have been able to at least ask one question of, uh, and, and what would that have been? Well, I, I tried to contact as many people as I could. I, I would have liked to have had Chuck Mulvihill, who was Hal's um, associate producer, contribute to the the book for whatever reason. He, he didn't didn't want to and there were several questions at the time about things that happened during the making of the movie there was one particular incident that I could only find sort of peripheral information about that had to do with some conflict with Paramount over a driver of somebody and somebody had called in the middle of the night and woken everybody up Right. I couldn't. I, I touch on it in the book, but I couldn't get all the details that I wanted. That kind of thing 
it's helpful to have you know people to, to get clarification on on what exactly happened a lot of the people though that either i couldn't you know wouldn't participate in the book a lot of them though are on the record quite a bit uh, for for various interviews and whatnot robert evans and peter bart both of who were the paramount production people they were they've been interviewed extensively about the um movie and the process of how it came about i would have liked to clarify peter bart has said that there was a meeting before the movie started production where hal ashby came in with cat stevens and they talked about making harold maude into a freaky musical and this and that i i just don't think that happened the way he remembers it stevens was not picked to be the musical part of harold maude until they were really making the movie they were in San Francisco shooting it. And he only came to the set in San Francisco where they were filming. He, I don't think, so I, I think he's remembering that wrong. <laughs> I do have one question about that and maybe you can answer it because, you know, we know that Cat Stevens came into the project late, but they were still shooting and he did come yeah. up with two songs and one of them he taught to Ruth Gordon. But what's always puzzled me was it's just such a dumb film techie question. When it came to Don't Be Shy, which Cat Stevens has said, along with uh, You Want to Sing Out, Sing Out, were both essentially demos that he gave them, thinking he was going to redo them later with more mm -hmm. instrumentation. Don't Be Shy is exactly the right length for what happens in that shot. Yeah. And I've always wondered, did they have it when they shot it? Did they say to Cat Stevens, this is your slot, you need exactly X number of minutes. Right. Do you have any idea how that worked? I, I don't have any, I can't say for certain that I got out of anybody's mouth, but my guess is that no, they didn't give Kat an exact time and say, hey, you know, don't be shy needs to be three minutes and 12 seconds or whatever it was. Uh, my guess would be that Hal edited the sequence to the song. But Jim, it's all one shot. From the time Harold puts oh. the puts the needle on the record until the time that oh, he kicks wow. his foot off the stool, and you can hear the rope swinging as he swings, the song yeah. ends at that moment, which is why it's always puzzled me as to how, you know, and it's like I say, it's a stupid yeah. film geek question. Um, <laughs> did they get lucky, or did they already have the song? Or, or what? So it may be one of those yeah. things we'll, we'll never know. My other question that I would ask if I had Hal Ashby sitting in front of me, yeah. uh, and again, is another stupid geek question, is the point in the movie, which the people in the Harold and Maude world call the look, which is mm -hmm. when Harold breaks the fourth wall and looks right at the camera. Uh, oh, yeah. To my eye, it appears to be in slow motion. If you look at Vivian Pickles, she blinks. Or I think Harold blinks. It's clearly been slowed down a little tiny bit. Yeah. Uh, which would have been something he would have had to do in post. Yet, again, stupid film geek thing. You know, this is 1970, <laughs> 71 when they shot it. Yeah. You, he would have had to make an internegative of it to do that. And like all special effects at that time, there would yeah. have been a slight shift. Yeah. And there is none. Do you know anything about that moment? I I really, I really don't. I, except for the fact that, you know, they said that it was not planned you right. know that it that it was imp that it was improvised on 
Well, next time you see it, look at it. I believe <laughs> yeah. it. he actually switches into slow motion in order to draw it out just a little bit longer yeah. to make that part work. But again, because it's over 50 years later, we're, we're just <laughs> never going to we're never going to know. Do you have a favorite moment in the movie? The closing sequence, the intercutting between her going into the hospital and him waiting at night and then driving to the point in Pacifica where the uh, car goes over. And and that was not done in the script that way. That was not written in the script that way. That was... That was all done by by Hal in the editing room. Because there and, is there was dialogue in the hospital, and that's yeah. clearly been cut. Yeah, I, I love that sequence, and it's set to, of course, a very great piece of music, "Trouble" yeah. by Cat Stevens, and uh, it's just a really um, it's a great way to conclude the movie. And then you get the car going over the cliff, which they apparently had a lot of tr- trouble with, and yeah. there is that awkward. Still, which mm-hmm. I guess he had to do again. That would be that would have been a good question to ask. How you know? I guess that had to be done maybe to match sound or something. That I they think he was to, just trying to draw the moment out so that it was more of a moment. Yeah. that you had to had to yeah. watch. Uh, apparently, they only had one camera that got the. Uh, they had a ton of cameras shooting it, but there was some. I talk about it in the book. There was some problems with starting the shot, and some cameras rolled, and other cameras didn't, and some cameras had malfunction. Yeah, that's uh, that's every yeah. filmmaker's nightmare is yeah getting that getting that well, one on that, car and, wrong. and especially on that one scene where the car gets wrecked. Now, I I should mention about about the car that uh, I was after the book came out. I was I didn't have a lot of information about the car but after the book came out I was contacted by a gentleman named Don Kessler and he works for a man who actually recreated the Harold Maud the Hearst limo the years yeah <laughs> yeah and and uh, this this gentleman uh, Ken expended quite a bit of money doing an exact reproduction of the uh, limo Hearst and uh, he brought it to a we had a book signing in 2016 at the western railway museum where the rail cars located that was Maud's um, home the, they brought the car and i did a book signing and people could go through and tour the uh, the rail car is the rail was, car still set up as her home it's no it's not set up as her home like it is in the movie it it everything was taken out that they put in and it was reverted to what it is which is a 1930s Pullman or something um, rail car, but it the core of it is there. Right, the carpeting and the uh, some of the glass things like that they, they are still there. Okay, but, you know obviously a lot of the objects, all the objects are taken out. Right, is there something that people often just get wrong about the movie that that you think the book helped correct? Well, yeah, one thing comes to mind which is that some people have speculated that Cat Stevens does a cameo in the movie, and that's wrong, <laughs> because the scene that they point out that that he appears to be in was filmed before really Hal had even made a final decision on Cat Stevens being used. It's, it's, it's uh, the scene at the... Um, at one of the funerals okay and uh it, she is standing there and the camera looks across at, at her at maude and there's a man standing near her who appears to resemble cat stevens has a black beard and looks a little like him and the timing of when that scene was shot it can't 
can't be Cat Stevens aside from the fact that there's just no record of it. There's no. Uh, so that's uh, that's a, a minor point I think that people get wrong. Okay. What um, since the book has come out, since you wrote the book and it's been published, what is what else has come to light, or who's approached you with new information, or what what has the book done to open up the world of Harold and Maude even more for you? The uh, most significant is Don contacting me about the the car and all the um, work that was put in on the uh, remake of the car and they had some information about the original creation of the original hearse jaguar car you know that they just couldn't they couldn't be that forthcoming with it so you know in terms of um it was apparently made by the the same car maker that made the batmobile and some of the other crazy 1960s right um, cars. I would have liked to have had more detail about that. I have talked with them some about it. I mean, I would, I would probably, if I was doing the book again, I would have more of an extensive on on that. Second well, edition. A, we need yeah, a second edition. Yeah, yeah, uh, maybe. It's not a huge part of the movie, but um, it is an interesting part of the movie and very well remembered by everyone yeah colin higgins originally wanted just a little british roadster an mg and hal and the production designer of the film decided that a jaguar would have more kind of punch because they were very popular at the time amongst americans to get jaguars and uh, to see it sort of you know destroyed the way it it is you know when the two-year anniversary of Harold and Maude at the Westgate happened here in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. I was still in high school, but I had access to a lot of film gear, a lot of Super 8 film gear, and also new people who were working on the, the celebration. So I was able to pretty much follow Ruth Gordon and Bud Court around for the two days they were here oh. um, and shot a documentary. I'll put uh, a link to that in the show notes, and I'll send you a link you can see. It's primarily looking at uh, what they did when they got to the Westgate Theater. But I did follow them around for two days. You know, they would go from press thing to press thing, and I would run and get on a bus and try to follow them to the next press thing. But because I knew the son of uh, the film critic at the Star Tribune paper, I got to go to dinner with him and with Bud Court. And I don't remember a lot of it, and I wasn't savvy enough to ask the right questions that I should have, just because... You know, I was 14 years old, 15 years old. What do you want? Give me a break. But I do remember Bud Court saying the question that he is asked most frequently by anybody anywhere is, did you really crash the car? And he would always say, yes, we really, the car is really, really crashed. um, Yeah, yeah. So all these years. I believe it. All these years later, more than 50 years later, you've literally written the book on Harold and Maude. Why do you think it survived and why it's so popular? Well, it's uh, people just are so personally responsive to the movie. They love it on a personal level. And I think that has something to do with the philosophy of the Maude character. And a lot of people connect with that. A lady came to the book signing who had a shirt that she'd made up that had some of the quote quotations that Maude makes in the, in the movie. And, you know, somebody brought oat straw pie or something, you know. Oat straw they, tea they, and ginger oats, pie. Oats, yeah, tea. yeah, yeah, ginger pie, yeah. And oat straw tea. You know, they, they had a lot of these things. They really take it, they take it personally. Mm-hmm. They love those little touches. They feel a deep connection with both the Harold and the Maude character. Yeah. And it's 
it's, it maybe says something that, you know, this is a movie that's about death in a way and fake suicides and is a little morbid sometimes and has a s- severe black humor to it. But people connect with it personally. They love it. <laughs> and uh, it's a great movie and it's a, it's a wonderful film and it's just got some quality that everybody connects to. He's absolutely right. People connect to Harold and Maude, and they've been connecting to it for more than 50 years. Thanks to James Davidson for taking the time to chat about his terrific book, Hal Ashby and the Making of Harold and Maude. You can find a link to buy the book in the show notes. If you enjoyed this interview, you can find lots more just like it on the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. Plus, more interviews can be found in my books, Fast, Cheap, and Under Control, Lessons Learned from the Greatest Low-Budget Movies of All Time, and its companion book of interviews of screenwriters called Fast, Cheap, and Written That Way. Both books can be found on Amazon. And while you're there, check out my mystery series of novels about magician Eli Marks and the scrapes he gets into. The entire series, starting with The Ambitious Card, can be found on Amazon in paperback, hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. And if you haven't done it already, check out the companion to the books, Behind the Page, the Eli Marks Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for episode 109 of the Occasional Film Podcast, which was produced at Grass Lake Studios. Original music by Andy Morantz. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you occasionally. <laughs>